did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, that's Jesus talking. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now we're going to get to the point where we're going to be studying that later on in our study in the book of Matthew, so I'm not going to say a lot about it. But I would like to say this, all of what we just read is an outworking of our text that we're going to have this morning, where we have a concise statement of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Part of that ministry was what I just read about in terms of what place God or Jesus specifically wants to have in my life and in your life, and that place is none less than number one. And so he gives these warnings, if, if I don't put Jesus Christ first, and by the way, the issue is you can't put Jesus Christ first unless you've trusted him as your personal savior. And if he's not first, then we might wonder if you really did trust him as your personal savior. But the issue is, this is what he wants from people uh, to trust him as savior and put him first in life. Now, we're going to go back to what Matthew wrote in chapter 3 and verses 11 and 12. Last week we talked about John the Baptist. This is still John the Baptist speaking, but we're moving on from the, that main section on him that we had last week. But here's what John the Baptizer, John the Baptist said. To all the people that are standing around, those who came to get baptized by him, he says this, As for me, I baptize you with water. Now, I'd like to change that. That's, in, that's a construction in language. That's a dative case. In, with, or by is okay, but I want to change it to in water. As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove uh, his sandals. He will baptize you, and I want to change this construction because it's the same one. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So we can see there's a difference between John's baptism, which is in water, we use his water to do it, and the baptism of Jesus Christ, who uses the Spirit of God to do it and fire. He goes on to say about Jesus Christ in verse 12, his winnowing fork, literally uh, in those days they called it a winnowing shovel, but it was actually a fork-like mechanism where they could go in and take the grain that they had, that they had uh, gotten out of the head. It's got chaff and straw all over the place. Take it, throw it in the air into the wind, and the chaff and the straw blows away, but the wheat just falls straight down. All right. So everybody around John knows exactly what he's talking about it. They see people do it all the time. Many of them are farmers, and they do it all the time. So the one who is coming will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire has a winnowing shovel, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff 
with unquenchable fire. Now you have to know this is not about or a lesson about harvest with rice or wheat or barley or anything like that. It's about people. And he uses an illustration of what everybody knows and everybody has seen to talk about spiritual things. So that's a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a separator. And he separates those who are in the family from those who are outside of the family. And he takes and he takes the ones that are in the family and he gather, gathers them into his dwelling place that he made. And he takes the ones outside the family and it says they are burned up with an unquenchable fire. Some people will benefit by the glorious blessing of eternal life in bliss in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. I want that to be everybody in this room and anybody that's watching us today. Others, however, will regret for eternity that they did not pay attention to the claims that Jesus Christ made. A day is coming when Jesus will clearly and without hesitation separate the believer from the fakers and from the rest of unbelievers. I'm using fakers to refer to people in the church who pretend like they know Jesus Christ, act like they know Jesus Christ, but they really don't have a relationship with him at all through faith. Those are the fakers and the rest of the unbelievers. They're both unbelievers. If you have not already, now would be a great time to join up with uh, those who are headed for eternal bliss, those who are headed to heaven. And I'm going to tell you again how to do that at the end of our time together this morning. Now, we've read our text. We want to begin in verse 11. Remember, uh, this is John speaking. And what we learn here, and it's in your bulletin if you're following along, God prepared hearts so that when his son came, all right, he would reap a harvest of souls. So John is saying, here's my ministry. I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me, a direct reference, reference to the Messiah, is mightier than I am. I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. All right? So John, in verse 11, was designated the baptizer, and I think we've mentioned this before. That's so we can tell him the difference between John, the one who did the baptizing, and John, the apostle of our Lord, because they were around some at the same time. And this one is the, the baptizer that's being referred to. Now he explains to the people that have been coming out for baptism, and remember, he, he just got through chastising the religious leaders of his day, and he said, who warned you, children of snakes, you poisonous vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? He says, let, let your repentance be followed with a change in your life, which is, by the way, uh, always what's going to happen when somebody trusts Christ as Savior. Their life is to change because everything is different. He already told us, John did, that he came to prepare the way for the Lord, Messiah, all right? Uh, Mashiach Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, or, or Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the one that Israel has been looking for. He said the kingdom was at hand, so the people should repent of their sins, preparing their hearts for trusting Jesus. And that's why he came. So John the Baptist was sent, look, you, you go out ahead of my son, you talk to the people, you preach to the people, you tell them about faith, you tell them about repentance, and that'll prepare the way for my son, who is the Messiah, who will offer them salvation and his kingdom. Did Jesus offer his kingdom? Yes. 
The fact that he came means his, his kingdom has begun, but it's not fulfilled yet. It will be fulfilled literally because Israel rejected him. But John is out there preparing hearts for Jesus. It just helps if somebody hears about repentance and sin before you share the gospel with them. Now, you may have to do that, or somebody else may have done that, and then you share the gospel. Their hearts have been prepared for that. And that's what John was doing. He baptizes in water for repentance. So we need to say this, because it's been a point of contention for interpreters over the years. Is John saying, now if you don't listen close to this, you're going to hear me saying something I don't believe, okay? Is John saying that baptism is repentance and that we need it for salvation? You notice what I said? I didn't say, is repentance needed for salvation? I said, is baptism repentance that is needed for salvation? That's what I said. And the answer is no. That would be wrong. That goes against what the Bible teaches about baptism and about repentance in the area of a person's faith. John's baptism marked a person outwardly for the repentance that they had confessed inwardly. My thought on that is because John is very theological, he's a preacher of the word of God, that Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't become the savior of the world in the sense that he has died and paid for men's sins. So all these people that he's talking about, they're Old Testament saints. They want to repent of their sins and believe that God will save them. They believe that God can be taken at his word and by faith he will save them. But listen, when they meet Jesus, when they meet the Savior of the world, their faith needs to be transferred into what he would do for them. That's the trouble that we had in John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul runs across some disciples of the Apostle John. He says, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we, don't, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. All right? So they, they're way behind, so they have, they have to be caught up. But the point is, John's repentance was getting people ready to take the next step. And the next step is your faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So it's a different baptism. It is one thing to confess our faith and another to declare it publicly in, in baptism. That's why we have baptism. So you can show people in a physical way what's happened to you in a spiritual way by being baptized. What we have here in the baptismal waters is you signify, I come through that door there as a person who used to be without Christ. And then you get in the water, which is a symbol of death and burial. And, and the minister will ask you, have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your, as your personal Savior? And you answer yes if you have. And then they baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That baptism doesn't save you. That baptism doesn't let you go to heaven. But what it's saying is, I, I met Jesus, and I am being put into the waters of death. I'm dying to myself. I no longer live to myself. I come up out of the waters of baptism, and it signifies I'm a new person. Now, the baptism, the water didn't change you. Your faith changed you. You're just showing people on the outside what happened as a reality inside. And what happened to me was I became a Christian. I died to myself. I'm alive to Christ. And I'm going to take up that cross that he mentioned in chapter 10, and I'm going to follow Jesus because my life is not my own anymore. So he warns the religious leaders, John the baptizer does, if you're going to get baptized, live a life that shows that you have changed uh, by a heart of repentance. Now you can do that before you put faith in Jesus. 
Every Old Testament saint was supposed to do that, and every New Testament saint is supposed to do that. Now, in the next part of verse 11, John declares that the one who is coming after him, we know that to be Messiah, Jesus, is mightier than he is. And he's the one they're going to have to put their personal faith in when the time comes. The word mightier in the text means powerful in a physical, mental, and spiritual area of a person's life. So that word powerful could cover all three of those things, or if a person was to be specific, maybe just one of those things, but probably because it's true of Jesus, John meant all three. There is somebody coming that is superior to me in my physical abilities, my mental abilities, and my spiritual abilities. And that's the one you want to focus on, John is going to tell people. That's the one that you want to really, really take attention to. It also means that though people were holding John in high esteem as a prophet of God, like one they haven't seen for years, that's not what they're supposed to focus on. He's not the object of their, of their spiritual attention. People consider John a great man, but one significantly greater is coming. Remember, Jesus said in the kingdom of God, he who is, uh, John was considered a great person, but in the kingdom of God, even the least of the brethren are greater than John was here on earth. And that's pretty great. Even the least in the kingdom of heaven will be considered greater than John. That, that's pretty good because John is way up there. And people uh, really held him in high esteem. The one coming, he says, in fact, is so much greater than me that uh, he wants his disciples to know that he is not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg said at this point, John views himself as a, as a lower status than even a slave, one whose most menial task was to uh, usually carry the dirty sandals of his master when he needed him to. And if John's audience should think him impressive, one more powerful is soon to appear. And that's Jesus. Now, this emphasizes the gap between the greatness of John and that of Jesus. John counts himself as nothing, even though the people think he is great. John will one day say that I must decrease so that he can increase. I'm going to get out of his way. You ever wondered how long John ministered in his ministry? You'd be right if you said not much more at all than maybe a year. His ministry was very short. <laughs> it was powerful. It was costly. He got the word out. He did what he was supposed to do. But he will decrease. Jesus will increase. And I believe that's why God took him out of the way uh, through his death. John will one day decrease. And isn't that the attitude that all of us as Jesus' servants should have? We're just his servants. And we are, for his sake, considered as sheep to be slaughtered for him. Romans Romans 8.36. In the next part of verse 11, 11d, Jesus is the coming one who will baptize you in the spirit and with fire. The Bible does not say where it counts in the Greek text. You will never find the phrase in the Greek text in that Bible of the New Testament. You will never find the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That phrase never occurs, all right? 
Uh, that's a genitive phrase. It means the possession. It would mean that the baptism of the Spirit was his spirit baptism. It's not. The baptism of the Spirit should say, because it always does in the New Testament, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that's important. That separates us from a lot of other denominations in our beliefs. We don't believe that you trust Christ and later seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, there is no such thing. Number two, that's not what the text says. And number three, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you instantly get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's uh, being taught wrongly, I believe, uh, by many, many groups. That's because it would imply that it's the Spirit's baptism. The Spirit is not the one who baptizes us into the family. Jesus Christ the text says, is the one who will baptize us into, if you will, the element of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' baptism. It's Jesus' work. It's the baptism of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. Now that, uh, if it's true, and I believe it is, is going to take some time for many people to figure out. Jesus is also the judge. And he will baptize unbelievers in judgment, and he will baptize us with fire in our judgment as well. And that which shouldn't be there will not be rewarded, and that which is there uh, that is good will be rewarded for us by Jesus. Jesus will, however, rely upon the Holy Spirit in his own life to carry out the ministry that God gave him. What I'm saying is that I don't believe that Jesus did what he did on his own power, he relied on the Holy Spirit, which is good news. Because that's the same Holy Spirit of God that indwells you and you and you and you. You are not incapable of, of the greatest ministry because you have the Spirit of God in you. It's only when we quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit with our sin that he's not going to use us and work through us. You have the same power working in you that worked in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18, it says, Behold my servant, speaking of Jesus, and this is a reference out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's how he did that. You drop down to verse 28, Jesus admits that he's using the power of the Holy Spirit. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's exactly what he is doing. Jesus relies on the Holy Spirit. So I'm just wanting us to get this straight theologically. It is Jesus who does the baptizing. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit of God. And that's different than John's baptism, who baptized in water, the element of water. And it is Jesus who it was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he gives that same spirit to you. Friends, that's why Jesus was able to say, you see these great things that I've done? Greater things will you do. How could that be possible? Greater things than the things that Jesus had done? Greater things will you do. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in you. And it's the same Spirit of God. I hope that's encouraging. This all is a fulfillment of the ministry that was begun.
to be talked about in chapter 2 of Joel 28 and 29 about the spirit uh, being poured out on human beings. That can't happen until we get that relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning of that. And uh, let me just read that. I guess I think I wasn't going to, but I think I will. Let's go back, if you would, please, to uh, Joel. And I want to look at chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Now, what I'm saying is that this is possible because of the ministry of Jesus Christ, all right? Now, this is talking about the end days. In chapter uh, 2, verse 28 of Joel, it says, It will come about after this, which means historically future from Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That, that was promised in Numbers eleven twenty nine, And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. That's happening because it's going to happen in full because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Even on the male and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, I want you to know <clears throat> that verse 28 and 29 was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Then I drew a line in my Bible because everything after Acts chapter 2, verse 29, is yet to be fulfilled. Hasn't happened yet. But this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's intricately uh, a part of what the Spirit of God is going to do. So the next verse is an example of the division in the types of baptism. We see that Jesus is mightier than John in the effect that he has on people's spirits with his baptizing in the Spirit. In other words, one is using water, the other one is using the Spirit of God. Do you see the difference? One is greater than the other one. Jesus has a mission, and Jesus is going to fulfill that mission. Now, we can get some of that prophetically from Psalm chapter 40, and verses 7 through 9. If you don't want to go there, that's fine. I'll read it for you. John 4, John, I'm sorry, Psalm 40, 7 to 9. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. That means Israel. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Yahweh, you know. This is the ministry of Jesus. Now in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We said he's, he's not talking about wheat and chaff, right? We learn here that Jesus will separate all believers from the unbelievers, keeping the believers to himself and assigning a place of eternal hell for the unbelievers. The Bible teaches if you don't trust Jesus as your Savior, your eternity is in a place called hell, and hell will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. So the first part of verse 12, Jesus already has his winnowing fork in his hand. Because he's here, because he showed up as that baby in the manger, judgment has begun, as well as eternal life in Christ has begun. The winnowing shovel had the purpose of separating the threshed wheat seed from the chaff. They use the wind, our modern combines use, use wind. The goal is to get the waste material out from the midst of the valuable wheat. Years ago, my dad uh, had bought an old 7700 John Deere uh, combine that he was using on his ground out in McDonald. 
and my brother set that combine for him. It's an old one, and, and you, have, you have to set it just like new ones you do electronically, but you had to set it so that you get the wheat out of the chaff and the straw. And uh, one of his trucks came in with, with a load of wheat, and I remember looking at it and thinking, that is the cleanest wheat I've ever seen on planet Earth. There's something wrong. The old 7700 can't clean wheat that well. And so I drove out to the field, and my dad was going through the field, and I ran out to the combine, and I'm walking beside it, and I'm pushing away straw and chaff on the ground, and the ground is covered with wheat, covered with wheat. I, I wave him down. He goes, what are you doing? I'm trying, to I'm trying to cut wheat. I said, I'm trying to save wheat. And when it all settled down on the straw walkers over the sieves, there was this much straw and chaff going out the back, and, and a, just a... a just a blanket of wheat this deep going right out on the ground. Now, that's not the way you want to do it. And so I opened up the sieves a little bit. I turned up the air. Now he started getting little pieces of dirt and chaff and stuff in his wheat. But it's better than losing half your crop on the ground. But here is the illustration. I think that's kind of like life. There are fakers in the churches who think they're Christians and they're not. They look like wheat, but they're worthless. And that combine had a good illustration of that. Along with the chaff and the straw was all this fake wheat going out the back, but what was left was pure wheat. I mean, it was as clean as I've ever seen wheat be. It was just super clean. And God's going to do that. He can tell the fakers from those who are real. He can tell those who really know Jesus from those who really don't. And they're going to go out with the chaff and the straw, and they're going to be burned up. Now, uh, we fix that for the combine for other reasons, but... I think that's a great illustration of what that looks like. The purpose of winnowing is because there are things in the wheat that are not wanted. They're incompatible and worthless. John is talking not about wheat, but about believers and unbelievers. So it's really serious. This is about people and their eternities. Jesus will make sure that when he is done, the grain will be pure. The grain will be absolutely pure. Only those who know Christ as Savior will end up in paradise. No, nobody else. Especially those who think you can add something to faith and still be saved, like good works. That's not the truth. John is talking about people, and in the next movement of verse 12, as the farmer gathers the good grain into the storehouse, the Lord Jesus will gather and protect his true children for safekeeping. That's the storehouse. We know that's in heaven. There will be no end to the safekeeping of his children. He will keep them safe for the rest of eternity. And there is no end to that. Their paradise will last forever. In contrast to that, and yes, the Bible does teach about hell. It does say people are going there, regardless of what you may have heard you know, on TV or some other place. In contrast to the believer... The unbeliever will be thrown into the fire like so much chaff. And in the ancient world, they would save chaff and straw to not only start fires, but to keep them going because it really burns well. That is because it is easily burned and it is good for nothing. So we have to understand that sometimes when the Bible is talking about uh, things of this world like straw and chaff, it has another message, and in Psalm uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, it says, the wicked are not so. So see, this is also about real people. 
The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, the Bible's promised that from the beginning. Well, God is talking not about corn husks or wheat chaff. He's talking about people who refuse to trust him for forgiveness of their sins. You know, if we really believe in hell, then it should affect the way that we are living. Uh, Dr. Craig Keener this time says this, our culture, this is, this is really important, okay? Our culture prefers a comfortable message of God's blessing on whatever we choose to do with our lives. God reminds us that his word and not our culture remains the final arbiter of our destiny. I want to read that again. Our culture prefers a comfortable message of God's blessing on whatever we choose to do with our lives. God reminds us that his word and not our culture remains the final arbiter of our destiny. Sometimes we do worship our culture more than we worship God. And we should take the reality of hell very seriously. Jesus will not hesitate to cast his enemies into the eternal fires. There will be no love loss on that day for them. No changing his mind, no crying over that. Note that John says the fires are unquenchable. The word in Greek is the word asbestos, which you know what that is. You've heard of asbestos. It doesn't burn, right? In other words, it goes on forever and ever. Well, what is Jesus waiting for now? Why doesn't Jesus bring this on? Why doesn't he uh, just do it? Well, what is he waiting for? The Bible tells us what he's waiting for. And by the way, For a child that grows up in a home where they're beaten, where they're unloved, where they're kicked around, where they're abused, they can't figure out why Jesus would uh, let them have a home like that. And this answers that question. So if you were one of those, listen to this. I'm in Matthew uh, 13, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, But while the men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds or tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted up and bore grain, then the tares, the weeds became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, "Uh, Master, do you want us to, did, did we not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to go then? and gather them up. In other words, uproot them, pull them out. See, if I take those wicked parents and I get rid of them, I lose you. God's not willing to do that. He helps you through that, and then he has you. You want us to pull up the weeds and go gather them up? And he said, no, for a while you gather up the tares, you may uproot the wheat, that would be you. Allow both of them to grow together until harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Gather the wheat into my barn. So what we're saying is this. He is waiting for the rest of the wheat. And sometimes wheat grows up in a weedy family. 
And he doesn't destroy the weedy family because he wants the wheat that's in it. That's us. And the Lord of the harvest will exercise authority over the harvest because it's his. Now that doesn't sound like the Jesus the world is is, uh, fabricating. That Jesus that they're fabricating sends no one to hell, punishes no one, just accepts whatever they want to do in life. This is not what the Bible says about Jesus. That Jesus is not the true biblical Jesus. So we need to get real about that. There is a heaven, there is a hell. And the good news is, uh, of course, we're not here just to focus on the negative part of hell. We're here to focus on the fact that God made a way for us to escape it, to never have to taste the fires of hell or, or feel the rejection of having his presence gone. Instead, he has given us a way to have God be our father. He wants to hold his children and love them and care for them. Well, here's some things we learn. The instant a person trusts Jesus as Savior, he is immediately baptized in the Holy Spirit by Jesus. There is no second act of grace. That's not biblical. Number two, baptisms don't save a person. Repentance from sin and trust in Jesus is what saves a person. Thirdly, we want to be very careful and not be too quick to desire judgment to come. Uh, the people of Amos's day were warned about that because they're going around longing for the judgment of the Lord to come. And God said to them through pro- the prophet Amos in uh, chapter 5:18, "Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, meaning the day of judgment, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. <laughs> we should be careful asking for God's judgment. We may be the ones judged. Want to make sure. And finally, this one. Jesus, his judging doesn't seem fair to some people. Well, what isn't fair is that he died for them. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Jesus' response to them is for them to decide. And what they need to decide... Excuse me just a minute. Is if whether they're going to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior or trust their own goodness. That's the issue. I had a chance this week to share the gospel in front of some people that came out of a different background and they believe in a gospel of works plus faith. And I got to tell them it's it's not works. Don't know if anybody did anything about it. I hope they did. But what about you? Are you trying to get into heaven by your good works? Are you trying to bypass the only door into heaven, which is Jesus Christ? The Bible says you must do this. You must recognize you're a sinner. You must tell God that you are sorry for your sins and ask him for forgiveness. And that's repentance, that you're sorry. And I'm repenting, Lord, and I want you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you, Lord Jesus, died on the cross and paid for my sins. And that when I ask you here, you'll come in and you'll dwell with me. And that's all you have to do for salvation. That's how you get in. Then there's a whole book to tell you what to do after that, how to live. I hope you've made that decision. If not, or you're having trouble with that, I would just love to sit down in my office with you 
get you a cup of coffee if you want one or whatever it would take and we'll talk about what the Bible says about how to get into heaven and I'll show you from the text exactly what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now for those of us who have made Jesus our Savior, we're going to celebrate a time of communion and what this is about is If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've done that by faith, God wants you to fellowship with him in this meal. God is inviting you to recline at this table uh, with him and, and have this meal to remember what Jesus Christ did. If you're not a Christian, you should not do this. The Bible says there's penalties for those who uh, say that they're in communion with the Lord and they know him as Savior, but they're not. And uh, there's consequences for that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I'm going to use Mark chapter 14. And you can turn there if you'd like to, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. This is not a place, uh, what we do here is not a place where you get your sins forgiven. That's not what this is about. It's about you saying, my sins are forgiven through faith in Christ, and I want to fellowship with my Lord Jesus. That's what it's about. What I want to do and what we've been doing here lately since we don't have the time to pray to the Lord while we're passing things out, I would like to read this passage in 1422 of Mark and then we're going to have somebody pray for the bread and then the cup and then we're going to take some time for Becky to play the piano so we have time to pray and deal with anything we want to before the Lord or just thank him for what he's done for us.